Welcome to episode eight of Community as a Verb, a show that talks about the tools for social action. We talk about social media, systems, processes, and strategies, and what we're doing to create the world that we want to see. I am your co-host of Community as a Verb, Connor Kaysen, and next to me via the powers of the internet is my illustrious co-host, Mr. Well-Traveled. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so impressed with your vocabulary. Just the fact that you can pull out a new adjective every week. I mean, I'm like, do you read a thesaurus before we start we start recording? Because I don't think I'd have enough adjectives in my vocabulary like that. I need to I, I need to figure out your secret. Well, that was probably the first time I've ever been comment or um, commented. Uh, what, what am I saying? Um, praised for my vocabulary. There you go. Uh, because my vocabulary is absolutely terrible. I'm definitely a talker and not a speller. You've seen from how I write the descriptions of the show, Mr. Well-Traveled, that like I can't write to save my life. I think on my Instagram story, I have a typo pretty much every single day. And so uh, that compliment, like that's the best thing. My, my day set. That's the best thing I could hear today. Well, we have, as you can tell, we have a special guest this week. And uh, his name is Andrew Grant. Houston, known by us as Ace, and Ace is a architect and the head of design of House Cosmopolitan. Ace, whose pronouns are he and him, also works in policy and is a housing activist here in Seattle. Ace, we're so excited to have you and have this conversation with you. How are you doing? What's going on with you? And uh, maybe give a little introduction about who you are. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me. Uh, appreciate it. So yes, um, my full name is Andrew Grant Houston. Uh, most people know me online as the Urban Ace or just Ace the Architect. Uh, and yeah, I kind of bridged this gap between being a licensed professional, so I am a licensed architect and have gone through all the wonderful, illustrious uh, halls of academia and being a professional and business casual and everything. And then on the other side, I am very much about being an activist, being involved in the community, uh, bringing together the the knowledge to be able to impact the city and make things uh, a better place. And I come from a mixed race background of being both black and Hispanic. And so for me, both in my architecture and in the work that I do, it's all about celebrating culture. And so I think that's a really big key for me. It's just kind of this idea of celebrating and having joy in everything. Well, let's... I love it. I'm so excited to have you. You you have such a perspective. I know uh, I met you a couple years ago. Uh, I'm trying to think where we actually met. Uh, maybe you you might know off the top of your head. Oh, it was um, what is it? how many dumplings are? The one in oh, Fremont. Yeah, that's right. You hit me up on Instagram about the maps. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then we got food at Dumplings Are. Oh, man, great memory. I'm so sorry I forgot about that. And uh, No, uh, you're totally great. And so uh, I know you're a big, uh, a big tweeter. I want to start with social media, right? Like Twitter is your platform, okay. right? And then also uh, Instagram, of course. And so I want to talk about, uh, yeah, before sure. we jump into some of these other questions, uh, because I know you're super active. I mean, uh, what's it been like for you this year? And then I also want to know about like how you have, uh, what your decisions have been with activism, with it being such an interesting year with the pandemic, right? Like you've been super active uh, on social media. And so I just love to know like how your year has been. 
Yeah, for sure. And um, I'm just going to acknowledge right now, since people will probably look at this later, If you, I don't know if you show the video or if it's just uh, audio, but just the, the small delay that we're dealing with here. Um, I'm all about honesty and transparency, so I'm like very real and being like, okay, we're dealing with challenges, but we're going to work through it. Um, but yeah, to kind of give some context, so pre-COVID and even when we met, um, it like one of the biggest things for me about living in a city and what I love about being in a city is being able to try as many different cuisines, um, experience as many different cultures as possible. And so when I moved here, and that was at the end of 2016, I was kind of looking around on Instagram, especially being a foodie back in Austin, um, which is where I moved from, and was like, okay, who is the person I need to talk to and I need to know in order to know that I'm going to good places because I felt like especially in my first couple weeks like I was trying a couple of different restaurants around where I was living which is Belltown and they were okay but I was like I need to find the places like I need to be able to, to experience like the best in Seattle and so when you just happen to come up uh, but, you know it's like I need to talk to this dude I need to uh, make friends with uh, finding Seattle that has to be a thing and so uh, through that and Instagram in general and being a foodie, I feel like it's all about coming together and building community through food, like having communal meals. And now that we're in the pandemic, that has really gone away. And so I've almost pivoted a little bit from being heavily involved in Instagram and using more Twitter as like a platform for discussions to really being heavy on Twitter. And part of that is because I am a high risk individual um, I have asthma and I also deal with uh, some, something called thalassemia, which is basically like uh, my blood cells are smaller than the regular person. And so if I were to get it, it'd be really bad. So I've just been in my apartment and luckily I got a, a pretty good deal. I'm like happy about it. It's an older place, but it's like 750 square feet, which you know in Seattle is like, wow, like that's great. Um, but I live maybe three blocks from Cal Anderson. And so if you know anything about the pandemic and then moving into the uh, unrest around George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the Black Lives Matter movement, I am at this intersection of all of these things going on, but I can't be outside. And so I felt like I had to do something. And that was being engaged on Twitter, sharing information about protests, sharing information about mutual aid, which has been a big thing, especially because we're trying to find ways of supporting each other, even though we physically can't be close to each other. But um, luckily we found this out more recently is just that it's more of an airborne disease and not something that travels on items. So we've started like giving things. So um, collecting food, uh, cash, clothes. I know like even myself, like I rummaged through my uh, closet a couple different times and said like, okay, what are the things I actually don't need so that we can give it to the people who are hurting, especially in this time? That's great. I mean, you, you have been such a resource for me, uh, especially from like June to August when the uh, chop slash Chaz was happening there. And so I'd love to like ask you more uh, specifically about what that was like for you. And then uh, I'd love to hear just more in depth about uh, how you were activating yourself because I thought it was so cool that you're like, I can't go outside, right? It's not safe for me to go outside from a COVID perspective. Um, I mean, also, I guess a police perspective as well, you could say. And uh, what was it like just yeah. dealing with uh, and, and, and handling that situation? And, and, and 
uh, feel free to expand about how you feel about uh, police brutality and, and that whole situation in general. Mm. Yeah, it has been a challenge for a while. And I say that because even when I live back in Austin, like Austin is one of these places where you can honestly be out at any time of day. Um, it could be in the middle of the night and walk around and you feel generally safe. Um, but I would say particularly around the time of like 2015, 2016, Ferguson, it became much more aware of just how systemic racism and in essence almost a genocide against black people um, was still very much a part of uh, the identity of this country and especially um, a lot of I would say blowback from actually having a black president like uh, in some ways there were many white people who felt like their culture was going away that their culture was dying because we were finally getting a chance to be able to to talk about our history and our culture and see it embodied in uh this visible leader and so what's been really challenging and kind of scary for a while since about 2016 is just being outside as, as a black person um and i think i've mentioned this before but it's nice sometimes being in Seattle to be able to go up to Vancouver because I feel like, okay, I can kind of relax a little bit, which Canada definitely has its own problems as well, particularly when it comes to indigenous uh, and first nations people. But even so, because there's not the same gun culture as there is here, just going up there, you're like, okay, well, I feel like even if I get into a situation, it's gonna be fine. And that's the one thing that really sets apart what I would say are actually two similar cities in some way. And as we start to maybe talk later a bit more about sustainability and just kind of the direction of the city as a whole, there's a lot to learn from Vancouver and even Canada about trying to have more productive conversations around a lot of things. Um, and so to bring it all back, uh, it's really saying like, this is not something new. And um, what I really recognize during this time of unrest, especially in June and July, is that there are groups and organizations that I already was uh, in contact with a little bit, maybe not supporting the same way that I am now, but groups like Decriminalized, uh, Decrim Seattle, No New Youth Jail, who have been fighting for uh, justice for many, many years, and especially looking towards the uh, abolition of the the criminal system that basically the incarceration system and so what I think is really different and special about Seattle is that this has been happening here for a while where people just were already organizing and already pushing for change and so as much as this has been such a, a horrible time in many ways it gave the spark for this larger discussion and leverage by the community to be able to push for the change that we've really seen. And we haven't gone as far as we want to. I know one of the biggest uh, issues around SPD in particular in Seattle Police Department is to defund the police department in order to increase the amount of money in non-police forms of public safety. And I think that's really clear because a lot of people keep talking about, we gotta defund the police and that's one step, 
And yes, but it, the, the overall goal is to still have the same amount of public safety, if not more public safety. Um, because yes, being a black person in Seattle and through this entire time, even if I have like a slight inconvenience or an issue with anybody, I can't call the police because that's potentially going to make the situation even worse. And so when you have a system like that, where large sections of your population in your city can't rely on basic uh, public safety, basic resources from the city, you have a problem. Certainly. And, and, and you live so close to that police precinct too. And so to have those feelings of, yeah. I'm safe in my own community, uh, you know, speaks large words about changes that need to happen, right? Like no one, no one should feel that way in their own city, especially in the proximity that you live. It's just, that's super unfortunate and need something needs to be done about it for sure. Um, uh, it's going to be a slow process as we're starting to see. Um, but it has brought a lot of light into the issue. And so hopefully uh, kind of having more people be aware of it from everything that's gone on this year. I think it's a positive change. Uh, like you said, not enough at this point, but it's, it's a step at least in the right direction. Absolutely. Mr. Will travel before yes, we get and that really has been. Oh, go ahead. Finish it. Uh, yeah. I was just going to quickly touch back because you had talked about Twitter and like being so active on Twitter. Um, that really came down to, to what you're talking about, which is very much the knowledge is power. So sharing as much information about what's going on so that people really have a true understanding, especially because when it came to Chaz and Chop, this, it became such a huge national conversation. And particularly as someone who works in the built environment, I had to really explain to people, yes, there's this like larger influence of like what's happening, but in terms of the actual physical extents of where uh, the organized protest was in Capitol Hill, it was really maybe six or seven blocks. Like it was not a lot of space, but yeah. it, you could see how a, uh, a, like a community or public space can have such a major massive impact on larger conversations. And even if we're talking about world history, for example, uh, Tiananmen Square, which is a fairly sizable square, but if you think about how you know about it in history and the place that it serves, places that are really, really small can end up having massive uh, impacts on a global scale. Yeah. You get really deep. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's a great, a great analogy too, right? Um, and how a lot of times these movements or moments in uh, history, you know, come down to uh, a park or a bridge or like they, everything kind of like, centers into this one focus spot where uh, it all takes place. Mr. Well Travel, do you got any follow-up questions there before we transition more into um, architecture? Uh, no, I mean, I think that actually was a good transition for us. Um, I'm interested actually, uh, well, first I wanna say, Ace, thank you uh, during the election and during the time when we were uh, really heavily promoting the Next Step City Guide voter app. Thank you for um, posting that on your profile. That was uh, very helpful and oh, of course. something that um, I, I appreciate it when anyone did that, but 
but um, recognized that it wasn't even an app targeted towards anyone in Seattle. So it was nice that people in Seattle took the time and, and you specifically took the time to do so. So thanks for that. Um, uh, yeah, no, I'm actually interested in us, you know, transitioning to uh, talking a little bit about architecture, but before we really dive too, too much into housing policy. I want to take a step back actually, because you mentioned um, that before Seattle, you were living in Austin. And so as we mm -hmm. uh, move through the conversation, I do, I am interested in, in some more of the comparisons um, because you mentioned a comparison between Vancouver and Seattle, but I'd like to also know about where Austin sort of fits in your mind and, 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 and maybe on a spectrum, mm. um, if, if that's a pot if that's a possibility. The other uh, thing is, how did Absolutely. you get into architect architecture in the first place? Yeah, um, so let me, I'll start with how I got into architecture first and then I'll kind of like move forward in time. Okay. Um, so if I think about it, and I reflected on this in while I was in school. Um, when I was in school, I was like, oh, okay, well, my grandfather, uh, my abuelo was a carpenter and so I was always around things being built I was always around like um, sometimes I was I'd be there for the summer and I would go along and get to to see some of these like construction things I had a close encounter with uh, insulation the pink like itchy stuff and so like I will never forget that <laughs> that's a part of my childhood uh, but a big part of it for me came down to Legos and also sandcastles in like a weird way. So you being from Texas, you know about the, the coast and the Gulf Coast in particular, it's not kind of the, the water that you want to go swimming in. And so um, whenever we would go down to the beach, because that was probably the, the most common thing we did at least once a year, I would go and play and build sandcastles. And I would just like put things together. I was always interested in like making new things and it was always great because other people would be doing the same thing. You would start to create like a, a bond between other people. Um, you would find things every time that you went that were different. And so you had like different pieces like shells and uh, seaweed. And so that is like a little kid. And when I was like in fourth or fifth grade, I said like, I'm gonna be an architect. Like that's what I'm gonna do. And this was before the internet was even web 1.0 where like everyone had general access to it and so my understanding of what architecture was and like how to be involved changed drastically whenever i moved to austin because that's where i went to school i went to the school at the university of texas and so um that was a huge wake-up call of like okay this is actually what architecture school is uh, i have no idea what I'm doing. I am out of my depth, <laughs> especially as someone who um, who grew up uh, with a, a single parent who's a teacher. It was always like, just study hard, study really hard, get good grades, and you'll get into a good school. And I got into the good school, but then it's like, well, after getting into the good school, like, what's the next step? And so, um, I'm originally from San Antonio, where I was born, and kind of moved around a bit, but San Antonio compared to Austin, they're very different cities in terms of how they're laid out. Um, San Antonio, I would say it's much more like, kind of like Bellevue in some ways, where it's like, you got these really big streets, 
you have lots of space between buildings. Buildings are like, there's a couple tall ones, but it's mostly single family, but you have to drive everywhere. That's kind of like the big thing. And in Austin, um, that was not the case. This was something where I actually, as someone who does not know how to drive, had this new level of agency and new level of freedom. And you combine that with being a person of color, being in a city where I feel like I'm able to kind of just walk around and go anywhere I want to. Um, also at this time when I moved for college, I was coming out. And so uh, being bisexual, being queer, finding this like new identity, forming my identity, it's very much about like being in Austin, being in the city, being uh, a part of like all this great culture, especially in the center of Texas. And um, thinking like the city is amazing. Like everyone should be able to experience this. Everyone should be able to be a part of this. And so I, I say that because I feel like Austin in many ways is about 20 years behind Seattle. Because okay. Austin is seen as a, a fairly a fairly liberal place, um, but after I came here for the first time, I was like, okay, mm, I don't. <laughs> we think that we're liberal, but that is we're we're on the spectrum. Like we are like center left. Like if we're talking like Democratic Party, like very much like Joe Biden kind of uh, liberal. <laughs> Yeah, I see Connor laughing. Yeah, um, Joe Biden. And Seattle is very much like in the general, well, this was me coming in. So this is before I got really deep into it. Because once you get deep into it, you're like, oh, okay, actually the city is pretty similar. Um, thinking like, oh, okay, well, in terms of where Austin is compared to Seattle, Austin is much more expensive. Austin has a, at the time, had a much more developed tech uh, sorry, Seattle had much more of a tech pub and bubble versus Austin. Austin is much more focused on startups and especially at the time, lots of smaller companies, but not the, the big giants like Google and Facebook and even Oracle, which is now moving there. Um, like there were, there were very few major companies that were started in Austin. And so I bring that up because I've also lived in San Francisco. And so in my mind, San Francisco is the place that Seattle could go to in 20 years if we don't start making the changes that need to happen to be able to ensure that everyone is able to afford to live here. Because what I've seen, especially from Austin, is that there were many times where changes in the city, like getting light rail, uh, allowing for apartments in most places within Austin was just not going to happen. And you become more aware, especially after coming out of school and living in the city proper, is how much control has been given to the older, wealthier white homeowners over time and how that's become entrenched. Um, a big part of Austin history, and most people don't know, is that I-35, which basically cuts uh, between East Austin and West Austin, um, was essentially built to ensure that Black people stayed on the East side. So that highway was built in about 1945. The, the great push for 
essentially like just the terrorism of black Austinites happened in like 1928, 1930. And so there are actually many parts of West Austin. Uh, and these are like the wealthiest parts that nobody wants to change. There are places called Zilker and um, Clarksville, which actually was started, started as free men towns. And these places are now like almost exclusively like single family detached houses uh, and really cute like small boutique stores, but they never talk about the history of how they got to that place. And so now what you're seeing in the city is that these places where in essence, white people have carved out space for themselves, refused to change. And so they forced all the change to happen on the east side of Austin. Very much like here in Seattle, we have what's called the urban village strategy, where we're gonna put all the new density and all the new apartments as close to downtown as possible, which just happens to be all the places where uh, people of color live. So Columbia City, the Central District, uh, Mount Baker area, like all of that. And so what I bring that up to say, we are heading in a direction where Austin is not learning from Seattle. And if Seattle can choose to uh, recognize the potential future of moving towards a San Francisco where nobody is happy, truly, no one can afford to live there. All the culture that is talked about in the history, especially here in Seattle, how big music culture is. Um, if we don't address the affordability issues and the housing issues, then we're just going to become a shell of what we used to be. And, and so... I know that was a long soliloquy. <laughs> I know, I was like, there's so, there's so many questions. Um, how what are your thoughts like how do we do how do we address that so a big one is just building more housing and i know a lot of people have issues around that because they say okay well everything that's being built is expensive and what does affordability really mean where does the housing go and it's really working from a place of harm reduction and i would say that's something that I have really learned and really taking the heart from other community groups that have been here for much longer than I have and have been doing this work for so, for so long. Um, even something that has come up and that I didn't know is that one of the first Black Panther chapters uh, was started here in Seattle. And so the, this idea of community taking care of itself, community as a verb, um, being able to support itself and I bring that up to say, yes, we need to allow for new housing and basically across the entire city, but of course it's gonna impact different groups differently. And so what are the other things that we can do in order to preserve like those really great neighborhoods, those really great coffee shops, those really great restaurants and bars that we all love to go to, but could get pushed away with all the new wealth that's going to be created. So you start to think about like, okay, what are other steps that we can take knowing that we have to do this thing, knowing that we have to build more housing? What are the other things that we can do to mitigate the potential fallout from that? And so you talk about things like rent control, which is technically illegal in the state, but that's something that we can work on. Um, we talk about uh, expanding home ownership programs so that people actually know how to finance uh, a house to be able to buy or even 
be able to finance a project. So when we talk about uh, a single family home, there are a lot of people of color who actually do own their houses, especially in the south end of Seattle. And so how do we empower them to be able to help us build housing? Because we know that they're going to want to take care of their own community and say like, okay, well, I have my house, but let me build like two more houses in the back because I can now. And I want to give those to people who have already been displaced or my friends who I want to live with. And so what are those other steps that we can do to like move us all along in the direction that we want to go in? Cool. I love that. So, so I want to actually, um, you know, react a little bit to, I mean, you said a lot and I think, you know, and where you started, (laughs) well, yeah, true. But I mean, I think where you started with Austin, right, was around a, a very specific issue that exists in most major cities, right? So you have, um, homeowners, homeowners who vote, homeowners who vote and support politicians and policies that maintain their wealth and and by mean in order to maintain their wealth and, and in particular we have seen this uh in, in a nice i article somewhere on the internet um in uh, seattle there's this neighborhood wallingford and there's a uh, wonderful uh-huh. wonderful wonderful story that talks about how the residents of that community banded or that neighborhood banded together and have been working together for quite some time to ensure that there is not a large supply of new housing or even apartments built there. And I think what's, I think, you know, Mm -hmm. when we talk about the issues of, um, you know, neighborhoods and housing affordability, we do not often talk about the role of the single family homeowner and their power to be able to actually increase the inequity. And um, I wish we did more of that because we do often jump to the solutions and say, well, if we do this for these, you know, these types of solutions, we talk about these people, but I'm like, I want to go back to root cause. Like that has to be addressed too, because if you then become a homeowner, you then adopt a very similar approach and, and mentality. And I see that all across all uh, the spaces where we're talking about gentrification. So um, how, how, do you have any thoughts? First I should ask, do you have any thoughts on how we address the single family homeowner and their, their need to maintain their wealth? Yes, so I wanna go back to to the piece that you talked about, about speaking to the root cause of these problems. And I think that's a big part of why I feel like I need to be involved, especially as an architect, is because this is the history that we have been taught in our school and have an understanding as to all of the different reasons as to how we've gotten to the current environment that we have. And I say that in conjunction with my other degree that I got, which was urban studies, because I really wanted to know as much about the city and how cities kind of came to be. And a big part of that was the history of just really racism in the U.S., like in so many ways. And it's really challenging to talk about at the same time, because you have not just the people who, once they get into that upper echelon, forget about where they are 
And that happens across all gender identities, all races. It's like once you get to a certain point of being rich, you become rich before you become anything else. Because um, mm -hmm. even for myself, like I live in this intersectional place, but I also recognize um, that is impacted by my class as well. Um, <clears throat> and to, to speak on that a little bit more, the challenge is not just those people, but the, some of those people were born already in that class. And it's hard to get them to understand the, the world that they have been born into and the problems that happened before they were alive. You have a lot of people who um, I would say in some way are fairly libertarian in terms of, well, if you just work really, really hard, then you're going to be able to achieve whatever you want. You're going to be able to get that house that you want. You're going to be able to like, have your two kids and have your car, have the American dream, what we've all been taught that is very 20th century. And what I think has been very apparent, I would say within my generation, which is like generation Y and particularly millennials is for many of us, we busted our ass. We went to the best schools that we could. We, we had all the extracurriculars in high school so we could get in. We took extra jobs on the side so we could pay off some of our debt during school. And now we have jobs, like I'm a, I'm a professional, I'm a licensed professional and I have my own business, but it's like, I still have a ton of debt. Like I'm not gonna escape from that. And even then you have people who are like, well, you set yourself up for that. And you're like, but you told me that if I do these things that I'm going to be able to get this. And what has been made glaringly obvious, especially that most of the homeowners are older they're from a different generation where from that time in the 70s and 80s, and this is kind of like all these pieces are coming together and you realize that it's a systemic thing of wages have not kept up with inflation since the 70s. Uh, since the 70s, the federal government has decided not to create new affordable housing. So federal housing, the thing that we talk about is like, oh, the projects, like most projects only exist from like the 70s and earlier. Like we don't have new ones because legally we're not allowed to. Like at the federal government, you're only allowed to replace unit for unit. Like we can't actually build more. And so you talk about like, oh, homelessness is this thing that's existed forever. No, it's really only existed since the 70s. And so it makes it hard because you have these people who are then born into almost like a fish in water where they're just like swimming in water. So you can't tell them that they're swimming in water because that's been their whole life. And so it's like, yeah, you were born into a very specific piece and you have these privileges. And so how do you unteach that to someone? That's a really challenging thing. And I haven't quite gotten there, but I think um, speaking to my experience as an architect and saying like, no, this is the history um, here are some resources that you can use. I always recommend the book, The Color of Law, because The Color of Law basically speaks exactly to like, okay, well, you think that this was just something that happened over time and that people were really uh, uh, greedy, which is true. But here is exactly every single instance in which the federal government intervenes to be able to make the world that we're in. And so you start to realize 
okay, it wasn't just a couple of people who decided this. It's that the entire system has been set up this way for so long. And so that's the hard part, especially when it comes to a lot of the inequities that we're seeing, not just in Seattle, but basically in every city that has booming jobs, where basically us, we're um, college educated individuals, go to those cities because we know that in order to cover the debt that we've made, we have to take jobs like that. And so it's this vicious cycle that keeps going. And so the challenge is how do we undo roughly 40 years of damage in less than 10 years? Yeah. Because the world is on fire. <laughs> and so... Oh my gosh, the world is on fire. Okay. Literally. Yeah. I like okay, well, yeah. <laughs> color of law. So I have that book. Um, I'm still reading it. Yeah. It is, it's one of those books that it is, it is a dense read because you're reading about the law in all over the country. And it, and so it's not one of those books where you can just sit down and like, all right, I'll be done with this on a weekend. For me, it is, I've been no. working <laughs> on it for a while. And, but I, it, when people ask me like, what book should I read? If I really want to understand racism in the United States, I'm like, that's the one because there is no, I mean, you, you, I'm sure you, you know about zip code destiny, right? So there is no mm. way to re really understand the United States without understanding housing policy. Housing policy since 1865, right? Like, so we have to really think about yeah. the, the Emancipation Proclamation and everything that's come since then and really understand that um, everything that we think we under we know about the world or the cities that we live in and, and, the, and the states and the country that we live in is really not true. Um, I, I, I'm trying to <laughs> like parts of the but, history were hidden, like we were never given the whole story. That's the better way to put it. Yeah, I was trying to, I was like, I'm trying to like, I'm about to edit myself here, and I'm trying to think about exactly how to say it. So yes, that's the great way to put it because um, you know when when things are left out, you assume everything that you have learned right in school, and particularly um, everything you've learned is all that you need to know. And when I picked up that book. That was just a huge eye-opener that there are huge gaps in my knowledge, right? And I think for many people, starting there is a really great foundation for then being able to start to ask questions about the place where they live, right? So I have coworkers who have read that book. My um, employer actually brought in a consultant to talk about the book and um, talk about oh, strategies cool. for, you know, trying to go deeper on, on an individual level. And it was really good. Mm -hmm. And I, I've, I've started to talk with coworkers who've been questioning their own involvement in their communities and the way that they've said, well, you know, I voted mm -hmm. for this, but I didn't really understand the impact of a new zoning law, right? So, and zoning laws are talked about in color of law as being tools of segregation, right? right? And of discrimination. And so it's, it's, it really helps, I think, to shape um, your thought process in a different way. And so, you know, coming back to the, the earlier question, which is really around like trying to shape mindsets to be, I would guess, one, more inquisitive, but then two, to really encourage folks to, to think differently so that they can take different action. Um, I'm glad you brought yeah. that up because um, 
knowledge, I think, is usually the first step. You have to actually understand um, what the real root cause of a problem is. But then there is that next step, right, of like, well, what do you do as an individual? And I, and I think in your specific case, um, you, you've, you've mentioned this now a few times, you're a licensed professional. And, and, and at the same time, you are a very socially aware and historically aware individual. So in the spaces you move in, right? So professional spaces, um, mm-hmm. what, what is that like, right? Because I can imagine that you would be yeah. in spaces where you're um, around people who don't think like you. And how, how do you sometimes? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. All right. Well, we're getting there. All right. So how do you, how do you, how do you navigate that, I guess? And that's uh, something I'm curious yes. about. Yeah. And to, to speak even more about culture and kind of bring where I'm coming from, having this mixed race background and being intersectional in that way and um, coming from basically a lower middle class or like working class kind of family um, and mostly Spanish speaking outside of myself. Um, culture is so tied to everything, including language. And I talk about language in particular because in architecture school, we are taught very specific ways to discuss buildings and space. And we talk about space as like, uh, a, a place that you inhabit and we talk about moments and juxtaposition and uh, derivation and things that like the everyday person does not come around and so in that way it makes our profession of architecture and design very exclusive and seeks to like elevate it and kind of isolate it from the rest of the community, which I find extremely problematic. And so part of the work that I do, especially coming from this background of being a person of color in this lauded field, because many people still have a lot of respect, especially because it's licensed profession, even though we don't make that much money, um, is translating between those two and saying, okay, when we're talking about this, when we're talking about zoning, this is what we mean. Because the really tough stuff, and you talked about it yourself, about the color of law being really dense and really hard to get into, is there are many individuals who are directly impacted by not just the laws of the past, but the laws that are on the book right now, but they don't have the time or energy to be able to really understand what's going on. And that's also because not only is it like super dense, but the language was specifically designed in a way where it was supposed to be hard to access. And so I paint that that picture of being this uh, very exclusive club of individuals and being very white spaced. So, in terms of the number of licensed black architects, like what percentage of the total population of architects do you think is black? And just to give you some context, uh, the black population in the US is somewhere around 13%. So what percentage do you think based off of 13% um, of architects, of licensed architects are, are black? Hmm. Okay, I'm going to guess 4%. What do you think, Connor? Well, 
I, I followed Ace for a long time, so I, I know I've heard him speak with this. Oh, so, so you know the answer? Oh, you know this. You, well, you, you already know this. Okay. I, I, I'm going to assume that it's, it's way lower than 4%. I would think it's lower than 1%. It's not lower than 1%, exactly, but it is 2%. 2%. So 2%, 2% of all licensed architects that have ever been licensed in the U.S., 2%. Oh, this is, this is ever. Of those, what's well, the current number, but it's oh, okay. pretty much been like that, that number of through all time. Like it, it really has not gone up at all. Of that percentage right now, point. 2%. So basically 10% of that black architect group are non-male. So like no. I put that in context. Yeah. yeah, there's essentially no black women who are architects. We are, we have just gotten into numbers because they, they actually keep a tally. They're like, okay, every time a black woman becomes an architect, we're going to like um, celebrate that person. There's an organization. They're just over wow. 500, I want to say, since licensing started. And licensing started in the late 1800s, like 1870s, 1880s. So since that time, there have been just over 500 Black women who have ever been a licensed architect. That is crazy. Like, when you hear a number like that, I mean, we're in t almost 2021, and you hear a number like that. Like, that, that yep. sounds unreal. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you talk about the millions of black people who live in this country um mm -hmm. okay well so I, I i wasn't even okay i have to ask now um <laughs> so when you think about the people who are in charge of building the environment that yeah. everyone lives in everyone who everyone. is in charge of that well certainly not black women right so <laughs> yeah that's and you know okay so the question that i have when i hear something like that is um, what would our world look like like our the worlds that we see right like the places that we live what would they look like if different people had the opportunity to design them because I can think of so many things that are wrong with the designs of cities and of buildings um you know it, you know, we could think about, you know, the fact that we have to have laws that actually provide, you know, accessibility for people, right? So mm -hmm. I think about how different our, our environment could be. And I wonder, how do we get more um, variety, perhaps, um, for lack of mm -hmm. a better word here, in, 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 in just the more design perspectives. space. Mm -hmm. Poor perspectives. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Yeah. Um, because I think a big I, part I have to of be, that I, is just. Oh, go ahead. Finish your thought. Yeah. The, 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 the thing I was going to say. <laughs> well, the, the thing I was going to mention was actually that um, I don't think I've ever met a Black architect before. Like, you're the first one. And so. The interesting thing that I was thinking about this um, as I was, you know, thinking about our conversation today, I was like, I actually, I actually have never met an architect, period. And 
I've actually worked in real estate before, but I've never met an architect. They exist somewhere else oh. outside of the business. So, you know, they plan. I look at architectural plans, but I've never actually met the person who created them. And I think, um, I think that's an interesting thing, right? So, because my exposure has really been limited. And so when I think of an architect, I, I don't necessarily, like the, the, the person who comes to mind isn't someone who looks like you or me. And as I was thinking about that, I yeah. said, well, if that's the case for me, having been through a lot of different spaces and a lot of different places in my life, that must be true for a lot of other people. And I kind of wonder then, how do we actually get more exposure to architects in general and architecture? Because it, we do live in, we all live in a built environment, right? So is it that we're not being properly introduced to how our spaces come to be? Or is it something that, you know, is completely different than that? Yes. <laughs> so it's all of those things. Yes. Okay. And I I say that because when we when we're talking about like diversity and inclusivity and equity and justice, so the the Jedi mindset, so justice, equity, uh, diversity, and inclusion. In architecture, we're still stuck on the D, like the diversity. <laughs> like we still haven't gotten past the point of dealing with a lot of the gates that keep people out of the profession. And part of the issue with that is because we are always taught, and this is just like a, a thing that was ingrained into us as uh, being born in the US, that if there's an issue and it's on the person to like, rise to the occasion and push themselves forward because if for any reason that we've changed the system, then it's seen as if we're lowering the bar mm. that we're making it easier for people to get in when what we're doing is actually matching the expectations with the actual lived experience. Like when we, the thing that you talked about of, having places where you can clearly see that something is wrong, that they're like, there's not, it's not accessible, for example, or it's not conducive to doing certain types of things is tied to our culture and tied to our identity. Um, a really great example of this is a park. Like you can clearly tell when a park is designed for groups of people, especially as black individuals, I feel like we're very much about like getting together and being in uh, groups, but like in public places, especially in parks. And so if you have a park that's really small and there's not really a lot of like places to sit down or like something to kind of gather around communally, that's probably gonna be a park that less black people and other and less people of color are more inclined to use in general. And so part of it goes into okay, well, we need to actually get the designers to look more like the community. And that is something that I try and do as much as I can, which is basically just trying to support people financially, um, helping people through the, the licensing process, which most people don't know this, but after you go get your professional degree, so my degree was a five-year program, you then have to apprentice for 
two years worth of hours and then take six exams. And so you have to do all of those things in order to become a licensed architect. And so you can see where like there's barrier one, there's barrier two, there's barrier three. And let's say you want to go work for like one of the best firms in the world, like internationally known, like if you talk about like BIG or OMA, which designed the public library here with LMN, if you really want to go work with them, a lot of them end up paying their employees very little when they start or not at all. And so who are the people who are able to say, that's fine. I don't need a salary because my family has money and they can support me as I live in New York. Like the, that group of people are very particular. So you start to see how groups start to self-select and they say, well, if only you worked a little harder then maybe you'd be able to do that. And it's like, no, the system was always set up that way so that you would not be successful. But that's not something that you were taught. And so we have to start to rethink the system in general in order to improve the access and diversity within the, my profession and many other professions. But on the other flip side, architects need to do a much better job about engaging their communities and having a better understanding as to the neighborhoods that they're serving. Um, we try and do that through the design review process here in Seattle. And if you don't know about that, it's basically how you get a building built in a community. It's more problematic and it's a longer discussion that we could have at another time, but that starts to get at it. And it's basically, it needs to be more on the people who are, who have the power, who have the privilege and who know better to think about like, okay, who are all the different types of people who will use this space? It's not just about people that I know within my small group, because depending on who you are, especially if you're a white person who has not been in spaces of color, you probably just know white people. So you're, you're talking about a certain type of individual and not about all the individuals that could be a part of that. Yeah, especially in a public space, right? Like if you're building a park in a city, it's gonna be used by so many different yeah. people. And so not having that perspective. I, I was laughing when you brought up design review. Anyone who follows uh, Ace on Twitter will hear a lot about uh, design review. I feel like that's a very common thread uh, for you. But it's that important, right? It's just, um, yeah, it's a system where no one enjoys the system. But because it's been around for so long, it's like, well, we've always done it that way. It's a traditional way of doing things that no one really wants to get rid of it. Everyone's trying to reform it and like fix it a little bit and maybe it'll get a little bit better, but still no one is satisfied. Community is not satisfied. Uh, the people with the really expensive houses that don't want their neighborhoods to change are not satisfied. Developers who own the land and are trying to do the project are not satisfied. Architects are not satisfied. City is not satisfied. And yet we still keep doing it. Yeah, it's just a vicious circle. And so I wanted to go back to um, what your, your time in Austin and going to school and going to architectural school. Um, and and I, I hope this isn't problematic to ask, but like, what was that like to like get into school? And like, was there a time where you were you like, did you know that uh, the representation in that school was going to be so low going into it? Um, or was it something that as you've gotten deeper into the industry, kind of like looking around and being like, oh, this, there's, there's a bigger problem here? Yeah, it was not something that I was aware of. And I think part of that is just coming from 
the mindset of being like pushed really hard as a, a millennial and saying like, all you have to do is work really hard to get into school and then you can achieve whatever you want. I just expected that there would be other people like me. Like I knew that there was going to be some challenges, um, especially because of things around like affirmative action, knowing that there would be less people. Um, but I try to remember this when I, when I walked in, there were actually like four other people who were also black and some other people who were um, Latino. And so like within my class, like we were actually like, not bad. Like we had like a, a fairly like solid representation and this was back in 2007. Um, but then looking at all the people who were like worked at the school, looking at all the people who came to design review critiques, like there was only one individual in his name is Charlton. Charlton's fantastic. He's been at the school for a very long time. Um, but outside of him, there really were no other like black people really ever. And while I was in school, I actually sat on our um, diversity task force that was created within the university, or sorry, within the School of Architecture, where we said like, okay, and this was back in 2009. So this was even like much further uh, than like where we are now with, you have schools like Harvard and Yale finally getting on board with like doing those kinds of things. But we said like clearly this is an issue clearly we need to be adding more diversity more inclusivity into the the school itself and so it's been really happy i've been really happy to see like all the classes after me have become more and more diverse like you'll see like huge swaths of both black and african-american people you have both asian americans as well as asian nationals so like people who are coming internationally and you really start to see um that reflected in the projects and in the things that they're producing and you start to see this variety and this change and it's been really amazing but what's hard is that i know that they're probably still experiencing much like i was experiencing a lack of representation of the people who are giving opinions on your projects mm -hmm. and so that's hard because they're coming from um very much western perspectives very eurocentric and even like when i was going through school it was very eurocentric it was very much about like the western tradition and those arts and things that were coming from france and germany and the uk and so you take that versus like all the other architecture and design that was happening that was happening in indigenous cultures that was happening uh, in latin america and things have improved so much and also in africa but very much like history courses in school it's like you have to take the specialized class in order to really get into it versus being taught the western tradition as just like the standard and so i i recognize like once i came out of school like all the the things that i learned and working within that space and almost a, like code switching in some ways and when i have conversations with other people in architecture like i can I recognize when I code switch and when I use certain words, but yeah, it's the very white space and it has been for a while. And we're trying to, to reclaim that space in some ways and like make it much more representational of the work that we're doing. But similar to some other professions, it's always seen as like getting political. Yeah. And what has, what has, um, kind of fallen away from people's understanding, especially working in very public spaces, like working on parks and working on civic buildings, is that architecture is political. It always has been. 
people always tie identities and uh, movements to either spaces. And we talked about this even earlier in the podcast or buildings. And you talk about like uh, the Berlin Wall, for example, and how big of an identity that was and like the separation between Western uh, democracy and Eastern communism. And like when that came down, like how big that was. And so we, it's so funny to see the, the cognitive dissonance between people talking about those things and how big they were. And then when it comes to issues happening in their own communities and in their own space, they don't see the connection. Mm. They're like, oh, well, I just really want to use the park. And I'm really like sad that there's like a bunch of homeless people and not understanding like that this is a problem. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Mr. World Travel, do you have any thoughts about that? Or else I was going to ask about House Cosmopolitan a little bit. Oh, no, go ahead and ask. So uh, you're starting to see some of the change kind of at the, I feel bad, call it the lower levels, but like the academic levels, right? And that like those, that's probably where the change starts as far as getting people up higher up. But but you mentioned the big problem is still leadership, right? Like such a lack of representation. And those leaders are one of the gatekeepers because they provide the work opportunities after college. Uh, and so I know you started your company as like a way to create your own representation, right? Like to uh, kind of create another pillar yeah. of leadership, uh, which I totally endorse you doing. I think that's, if it doesn't exist, it's going to be really hard to, uh, you know, find your representation or for a company to all of a sudden have that representation. So you just decided I'm going to make my own thing, right. And build my own tower. And then mm -hmm. that can kind of like start to funnel new opportunity. Talk to us a little bit about why you started your company and what your company is all about. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's really great to, to bring this up in particular because I think it gets into like the, the equity aspect of diversity and inclusion, which is moving forward just because you have people who look a certain way and you can check a box doesn't necessarily mean that the culture has changed. And so the reason I started my company was one, I was laid off from my job and the job I had before was working for WeWork. I was a project designer, so I actually worked on uh, we work locations within Seattle, Portland, and Denver. And what was great about stepping into WeWork was on the first day when I saw the people working that I was working with, which was in construction and in design and even in technology. And that was a big thing is like, we looked like people outside. Like I had never seen so many black people working in design in one space. So I was like, this is amazing. Like, I'm so glad that we're all in the same space like this was it was eye-opening i was like i cannot believe i'm part of this and it's great because tech in general is good about diversity but it's within reason and so as i worked there more and more it became very clear like it's fine as long as you're within the bounds of our culture mm -hmm. and so there was that kind of disconnect and of course uh, when i joined it was right before 2019 and we had some issues with financing and funding of the company. And so we, what you started to see was like, okay, they start to, to call back and like lay off people. And like any other company, you start to lay off mostly people of color and mostly more women and like people who are outspoken. And I definitely was someone who uh, have, has always been outspoken if I see an issue. I'm like, this is not working or like, I can clearly see that this is not going to be successful. So I'm going to tell you something about that. So 
coming from that and being like, well, all the things I had hoped to see in an architecture firm and a design firm are possible, but it's still within these confines. Let's take that to the next level. Let's create our own thing. We're going to do our own thing because clearly traditional firms are not working the way that we want to. There's not the level of equity and um, really inclusivity and connection to community that I, I wanted to see. Like I wasn't seeing the projects that I wanted to work on. And then moving from WeWork and saying like, there are ways to do this and there's ways to be uh, productive about it and be successful. And so we just need to marry those things together. And so that's what House Cosmopolitan is. It's intended to be a different kind of architecture practice. I never talked about it being an architecture firm because we're very much not in the, the traditional way of doing things. Like I don't enjoy wearing business casual and like the, the tie and the pants, that is not who I am and that's not the community that I'm really serving. And so I do that to, to say like, one, yes, I'm, I'm visible, I'm a black architect, like you can be successful like I have been um, and you can do it to be that representation, but then also coming at this with a different mindset and wanting to work with people who are in power but want to see the systems change and say like, okay, well, let's do uh, a donut shop because I did the donut shop with me, Ken, but let's do it a little differently. So going from the pop-up to the stand that she has now, so I worked on raised donuts. Uh, and even just some of the concepts that I do, like I did this design for a uh, system of transportation in Seattle. It's called the uh, Sustainable Seattle Transit like 2040 Vision. And really breaking things down and saying like, okay, let's take the, the ideas and concepts around like travel, but let's really make it equitable. Like let's break this down to the smallest scales within the city and then tie that all together. And so I very much try and focus on celebration of culture and identity within physical space. Like that's always a big thing for me. It's always to see that. Um, I love color and pattern. That's always been a, a part of who I am. And so bringing that forward, because a lot of what we see just kind of looks the same. It's the same kind of like drab colors and like, it's not offensive. And that's like very much the Seattle thing, but I'm like, no, but there are just so many beautiful wild colors out there that we don't really talk about. But it's like the flowers that are here and um, all the people who come and bring their own rich identities and their history and background. So let's celebrate that. Like let's, let's have this great, wonderful, bright experience where we just walk through the city and we see so many engaging things and we want to walk so that we can see all this stuff and engage with other people and have this this sense of community and togetherness and belonging that really brings us all forward and we can all be happy in a way so very much that, an optimist <laughs> i i love I love all of the things you've just mentioned. Um, I want to actually tie what you just mentioned about the sense of community back to something you said earlier about language. Though, from my perspective, there is a disconnect actually happening in many places. Um, and since we're talking mainly about Seattle, I'll, I can, I'll just use Seattle as the example here that um, what community means is not the same for everyone within the community. Mm -hmm. And so I, I often wonder who people think um, 
belong, right? In in mm, their yeah. their definition of community. And I'm of the perspective that that's probably something we've got to define and get some consensus around that. Community means this, and it includes everyone, not just people you like or people that you think yes. can help you maintain your wealth. Um, because I do see yeah. in our environment in Seattle that there are very clear practices to exclude people in the built environment. And that's, not, and I don't mean just in housing, right? But I also mean in, um, you know, the way businesses operate and where they choose to locate themselves and, you know, how certain neighborhoods have certain features that others don't and th that those things are supported by banks and city policy and all of those things, right? So, um, so I wonder, do we need a common language as, as, a, as a community that will help us to bring to life some of the visions that your, your practice works on? Yes, I, I do think so. And I, I try and do that as much as possible when I, when I talk about uh, concepts within both housing as well as other types of policy, because I, I recognize that, yeah, it's not, it's not sexy, it's not interesting. And so how do, we, how do we put that in there? How do we actually make it interesting? Because it's really important. Like it has a huge impact as what you talked about. And so how do we get people to recognize the impact that it has and so to, to tie into the, the catchphrase I always have, which is like, I design places where people belong. Um, I have existed, especially being a queer mixed race individual of being in a lot of places where I have not been welcome or places that were not designed for me to have a, a space there. And so I'm trying to undo a lot of that so that other people in the future don't have to go through the same experiences. So that when we talk about building, let's say like a new restaurant or something, that anyone can walk into that restaurant and feel like they're able to enjoy themselves and like to be a part of that experience. Um, and so I think part of it is going to just have to be like, show your work in some ways and kind of like prove it and through doing more design but um, yes, I think really trying to, to develop this a new language that we can all kind of speak around design that we can all kind of understand um, it will help a lot. And I think we, we kind of get at that when we talk about values, like when we talk to people one-on-one -on -one and say like, what are your values? What are the things like at the end of the day that you really want, which most people just want a roof over their head, uh, food on the table, and to, to generally either hope that they have like a nice day or that their children are successful and happy. And so when we break things down to that elementary level and we say like, okay, this is what we're saying. And these are all the same between all of us. We just have very different ways of, exp uh, of expressing that same desire. And when we start to hopefully recognize and when, when we have people who have been entrenched in the American tradition and the belief that you have to have the, the house by itself with the picket fence and the 2.5 children and all of that, that we start to say, 
Yes, that's one solution, but that's not the only solution. And if those people who are dead set on that solution, which is more than fine, like if that's what you want your future to be, go for it. If they can at least recognize that there are other options that are just as valid and that deserve space within our larger community, then hopefully we can build this tent where everyone is able to experience and live the life that they want to. Mm. I like that. I really like that. I like that too. Uh, Go ahead. Oh, no, I was wondering if you, um, if that was a good segue to the 15 minute city, because now, I mean, we're getting into, you know, futuring. Oh, and so I'm like, yeah. I, I'm, I'm ready to, to hear more about, you know, what, what you see for the future of, of Seattle, of, of major cities. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, and I come at this with, a, a reminder for anyone who is listening and as I talk about this every single time, the reason that we are trying to apply anything like a 15 minute city concept or any other similar concept of, in essence, removing cars is because the current way that we are living is destroying our environment and in essence will be the end of our civilization. And I know that's really big and really scary for a lot of people because it paints this level of uncertainty but in essence what we are saying is that the current way that we are doing things is not helpful and we have to change so and so, so because we have to change what is the change so okay so let me make sure i'm i've got this straight the yeah. the burning platform here is that the current way we're doing things driving cars that is not something that is sustainable for for humans so the yeah. the solution is this concept called the 15 minute city is that how i understand yes. to understand it okay so can you tell us a little bit about 15 minute city like as a concept like what what is that mean yep. then so the vision of this solution for the problem. And as, as I, we were talking about just before this, uh, there are many solutions to the same problem, but this is the one that I am most interested in and a lot of people are interested in, is this essentially. You will drive significantly less if everything that you need is within a walk or rolling distance. So if you can go immediately outside, and for example, I live right by Broadway, so I am right by a uh, post office, I'm right by a grocery store, I am next to my gym, I'm next to coffee, there are multiple options for restaurants. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else I'd use like a regular day. Uh, if I need to go further, there's like the light rail that's right there. So everything that I need in like a regular day is within maybe five blocks of where I live. And so as someone who does walk, who's fully able-bodied, um, I'm able to just go outside and get everything that I need. And so particularly in this pandemic where the further that you go, the more risk that you're putting into, even if you're in a car, you still have to get out of the car and go somewhere. Um, it significantly reduces my risk, one. And then in the longer term, I don't, I don't need a car because everything is right here. So, 
in essence, the 15 minute city concept is that you should live within everything that you need on an everyday basis. Not of course, special things because you'll have to go further for those, but like grocery, um, ideally uh, living by your doctor or like a health provider of some sort. Um, your job, ideally that you're within like either a walk or bike of. And so in that way, because people are just driving less, then they're using less emissions. Mm. So is this concept something that is uh, actively like being implemented or is this uh, something that's just being talked about? Is it just a concept, an idea, or like are people actually acting on this right now? So it is something that is being implemented in Paris and in Montreal on a global scale here in Seattle the mayor has currently pushed it out as a way of framing the comprehensive plan. So when we talk about like a common language, the common language ideally is supposed to be the comprehensive plan. It's supposed to be the vision for the next 20 years, but we update it every seven years. And so again, being a professional and working in these spaces and having to use these laws every day, basically, and like being impacted by these all the time, I try and break this down as much as possible so that other individuals who don't normally have to be a part of these conversations, whenever we have the public outreach portion of comprehensive plan, I'm like, okay, these are all the things that you need to know. This is how it impacts you. Let's break it down so that they can easily engage and maybe just put in five to 15 minutes of time versus looking at it and being like, okay, there's way too much going on. I'm just not gonna touch this. I have never been involved before, so I'll be fine. Um, and so that's the challenge we have right now is because a lot of people don't understand the 15 minute concept or could actually abuse it if they're the people in power. So they say like, oh, well, we're doing a, a 15 minute neighborhood here and a 15 minute neighborhood there, as opposed to like, no, the point of this uh, is to do the entire city, ideally, so that we, everyone within the city is within a walk or roll of the things that they need and also recognizing that we have to move this quickly because we have been in a state of inaction for so long. Mm. So the amount of change we have to do, it's almost like losing weight. You're like, okay, well, I have a year to lose, let's say 20 pounds. And now there's like two weeks left and you have made like maybe four pounds of difference. You're like, crap, like now I have two weeks to lose 16 pounds. <laughs> so we're in this we're in this place where we're like we're, we're having to make a lot of change very quickly and it's because we have not made change over time and so is that is, there's got to be a lot of risk right there right with your analogy right if i've got to lose 15 pounds in two weeks the, you start thinking about cutting corners right and we won't talk about the ideas of how you cut corners with that but i would assume that the same principles apply for reconstructing your city is people are going to cut corners or you know not do things mm -hmm. in the right way to try to make those changes quickly that have uh, huge drastic impacts later on, which continue the problem. Absolutely. And one of the biggest challenges is that you still have those groups of individuals who don't want any change at all. And so how do you either nullify the power that they have to basically stop this? Or how do you speak to their concerns in a way that ties into the work that you're trying to do. And so that's what I'm trying to figure out right now, honestly, 
is, okay, these are individuals who own their own house and have been fine for a long time. So it's, it's what I call, it's not just like a NIMBY, which is no, uh, no in my backyard. It's more like a fuck you, I got mine. Like I, I'm gonna be taken care of and I'm gonna be okay. And trying to get these people to kind of zoom out a little bit and understand the larger repercussions of, okay, well, if we don't change this, um, and let's say the world gets worse, the, the climate gets warmer, people start to be unable to inhabit like most of Africa, uh, the water levels rise. And so every individual who's living in the Pacific Islands has to move. Those people are going to come to very specific places and that includes Seattle. Like people are going to move here because outside of the smoke season and a couple of weeks of that is like, you're still able to live a really decent life. And so what are the steps that we are taking now to be prepared for that? Because we already know that some of that is going to happen. Like we have gone too far and it sucks to be the person to, to like, to be honest and direct and real and be like, look, like I am all sunshine and I love having a good time. I love, like, like I said before, I love celebrating culture. I love engaging with people and doing things and going to activities and going to bars and going to events and festivals. But at the same token, I can't ignore the elephant in the room. Like I have to be clear and say, all of these things are great, but we still need to deal with this other issue. And I believe that there's a way for us to be able to move quickly where it might be a minor inconvenience for the next couple of years, but if we're able to get through that, if we're able to like eat our vegetables, then we're all going to be better for it. Like we're all going to have more of the things that we want and are able to do and the things that we love. Like one of the big things I would love to see is to allow for more commercial spaces across the city. Because one of the, the things that I get really frustrated about as a foodie is that there are so many like really cool new restaurants and things that are happening, but they're in Tequila or they're in Burien or they're in Bellevue or now they're like going out in Woodenville because that's where they can afford to have a place because there's nowhere in the city for them to be able to afford. And it's like, no, one, people should not be driving that far because that's bad for pollution, that's bad for the environment. Two, where do those people live? If they already live in the city, they shouldn't have to go that far to be able to afford to want to have their own business. They should be able to have their own business right underneath where they live because that's been history for so long. And it's only been in the last like 70 years of car culture that that's not been a thing. But if we undo that, if we allow people to be able to have more commercial spaces in the city, one, people like me who don't have cars are able to like go to them, enjoy them, and it's better for the environment. And then it's better for our economy because we're bringing more money in. And so it's like everybody wins if you just kind of like get over the initial pain of allowing someone to have a business like next door. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, okay. So in a, what you've just said, and in a lot of ways throughout this discussion, you've really touched on something that I feel like we just need to call out here very like directly, the climate crisis. And I, mm -hmm. I, I'm feeling we like- in we are in the crisis. Okay, there we go. <laughs> yes, we, so, so okay, so we we're in the here. crisis. <laughs> we are here, we're in the crisis. But we don't talk about that necessarily in that way, right? Like we, we're talk, we talk about, well, 
we need to recycle. Oh, no, or we're too polite here in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, so I saw something on Instagram that you posted uh, yesterday. It's something about a Green New Deal for Cascadia. And I feel like I want to maybe try to bring that into the discussion here uh, because I'm, I'm curious about a, a bigger... So we've been talking very much about city life, right? But the climate crisis is global, right? Um, and I know you mentioned um, yes. Paris as an example of uh, a city that's doing something mm -hmm. in, in terms of the 15-minute city that is a much larger scale approach. Um, but obviously, when you talk about the um, Pacific Islands, right, and the mm -hmm. impact of the climate crisis on people's lives there and how then that will uh, cause displacement that then um, means that people have to move to other places like Seattle or like other yeah. cities in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, it makes me think, sure, we can talk about city life, we can talk about neighborhoods, but we also have to consider our climate crisis and all of the other people in the world who are impacted by our actions in a city, right? Like driving around a city all the time. So yeah. I, I guess I wonder, um, in terms of your projects or in terms of your thoughts, what what what, what do we need to know as 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 you know, car drivers? I have a car. So as car drivers, as people yeah. who are who are nece not necessarily thinking about this in the way you are. Yes. So. I think one thing that I want to touch on is, yes, for the most part, I live my life in cities, but my, my mother's family also comes from a very small town in Texas. It's called Uvalde. It is now about 14,000 people. Like it's, it's pretty small. You can, if you're driving, you can get from one side to the other in maybe 15 minutes max, like from one end to the other, like very small. Um, I say that because Many small towns actually have really small carbon footprints. And that's kind of like, you can see like the impacts that someone has is carbon footprints versus um, the people who are at the wealthiest. So, so if you look at on a global scale, the top 1%, which actually includes everyone in the US, um, which is like, if you make $30,000 or more, you're actually in the 1% of global like economies, which is so weird. Mm -hmm. uh, they make up half of the emissions wow. of everyone in the world. And so part of it is the, the personal choices that we make in terms of like driving, like that's a big one, but also recognizing that a lot of the systems that we rely on, so electricity, like where's your electricity coming from? That's not something that you can directly have an impact on as an individual, unless you're working together with other people to change that system. We're good in Seattle because most of our energy comes from uh, electricity and, uh, sorry, electricity. It comes from hydro uh, as well as, I think there's a little bit of wind. So most of what we have is sustainable, but something else that people don't talk about even about electricity is that half of the emissions that come from that are just in the creation of it and getting it to us. And so 
when I'm talking about city life, it's also about connecting that to the rural in that most people who live in the rural area don't really have much of an impact and we in, have a smaller footprint than we have in the cities. And so we need to get better about um, reducing our use. So you talked about recycling, um, the, the concept of reduce, reuse, recycle, and it's in that order of priority. So it's, you need to reduce as much as possible. Um, and that's kind of hard for us, especially as creatures of habit. And um, even in this time of everyone being home, we're like, oh, okay, well maybe I wanna buy like a new couch. Maybe I wanna buy like a new, um, desk because like now I'm working from home and it's like just being mindful of how far it had to travel to get to you so thinking about those kinds of things it's really hard because you have to we're now talking about systems thinking we're not talking about how people look at things digitally which mostly when people see something digitally they're just looking at a screen and they're not thinking about like all the other things that are connected to that screen um but reducing and then reusing as much as possible. So things like clothes, trying to be mindful of buying things that have more value that will last longer, that will last multiple years, getting away from fast fashion as nice as it is, um, and then recycling. And so anything that we break down that we're able to use again, um, and even composting, I would say is a big thing because we're good about it here in Seattle, but most other cities don't have that. And so trying to even share that information is important. And then the, the one overall arching thing that I talk about when it comes to cities is that we try and keep things as compact as, as possible in order to preserve our natural environment. Mm. And especially if you have lived in Texas, you know how super sprawly it can be. Like cities just go and go and go because there's nothing that stops it. Here in, C uh, in Washington state, we have what's called the Growth Management Act it actually places boundaries on where people can live. And so that's part of the reason why we need to build up is because we've already set uh, restrictions for ourselves as to how far we can build out. And I am a part of what's called FutureWise, which is the state organization that kind of oversees this a little bit and kind of helps to, to be the steward of the land in a way. I sit on that board and that's the connection we're still trying to make. And it can be really hard, especially when we're talking about communities of color who have almost nothing. And I know that from having lived that experience of, okay, well, not necessarily having issues around putting food on the table, but kind of like we drive because we have to, like there's no other option to get places. And we buy this food because it's cheaper, like less healthy food, less having less healthy options, talking about food deserts, like all those things, like there are so many restrictions. And so it's the responsibility of people who have privilege, especially like myself, having gone through and become a licensed professional and now knowing better to really connect the two, to connect that experience and the systems and change the systems because I know that people who are in this, uh, this space are just trying to get by and that is so many people right now, especially in COVID, it's like, okay, we have to change the system. We have to all push a little bit to change the system to make the impact and cascade that down for everyone. Hmm. Interesting. And, and so what would your like individual recommendations be ACE for, for someone like me who just going about their normal lives, like what's something that I could do to uh, be more, more helpful with everything you're talking about? Yeah. Um, 
shop local. That's a big, big piece. Um, we're not going to meet our climate goals and reduce pollution and also try and change the economic system. And I know that's really hard for some people, particularly in Seattle, who say like socialism is the way and we do to completely get rid of capitalism. And it's like, no, um, we, can't, we can't do both. Like it would be great in some instances to like provide that support. And of course things work differently on a small scale versus a, like on a city scale versus working at the federal level. But the thing that most people don't recognize is the power in the boycott. And so if everyone makes a similar shift to say like, we're only gonna spend our money at local stores, we are only going to shop at local groceries and we're only gonna buy farmer's markets. One, that keeps the money that we're using within our own economy. And two, it is much better for the environment because the amount of time or the, the amount of space that something has to move and travel like is reduced significantly. And so in that way, we're supporting our own community. We are being self-sustaining and we are uh, creating this uh, uh, eclectic kind of culture and identity that is just our own. Like this is how you become in a way like almost more Seattle where you're like, no, 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 we, we support Seattleites. We, we shop at Seattle uh, stores. We support, like I love the, the Made in Seattle sticker. Like anytime I see that, um, I want to go there. I want to support that. That's a big one. That's that's a really easy one. It's just like uh, buying local. Yeah, with the holidays coming up, it, it's been nice to see how much of that message is getting out and around. I mean, and the pandemic stacks even more uh, beyond just the environmental concerns, yeah. the economic concerns. Mr. Well Traveled, because uh, yeah, we're kind of at like 90 minutes now. So do you got any last okay. questions and we'll start moving towards uh, the conclusion of the show? No, I don't think I have any last questions, but I've really enjoyed the conversation, Ace. Um, I've, I've learned a lot today, which I totally expected. I mean, how often do you get to talk to a Black architect or an architect or uh, anyone <laughs> who is as deeply invested in, um, you know, the, the housing, housing policy, our housing systems, yeah. um, and just all all of that and so it's, it's been just really fascinating to have this conversation and, and, and think about things differently I mean you're, you're making me wonder what am I going to do with my Amazon Prime account now because I've, I've definitely <laughs> I mentioned it last episode actually I'm <laughs> like um yeah I've been using Amazon quite a bit this year and uh that I, mean, not... I have Amazon so I'm gonna like be honest and say that <laughs> okay. up front and part of that is just because of being in the pandemic, of only being able to get things delivered. And so you kind of, you have to work yeah. within the space that you have. Um, but yeah, I'm really happy, even though I feel like I was mostly doing a soliloquy or some kind of like <laughs> stub speech of um, hoping that people can kind of connect the dots and to recognize that in many ways we're kind of playing a game, but there are ways to change the rules of the game. And so if you understand the rules, then you're able to, to change them. And if you can see the forest for the trees, then you can make the choices that will then get you to where you want to go. That's awesome. Okay, well, with, with that, I hear the mayor of Seattle is uh, not uh, running for re-election. So are you going to be fair. running? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
if I feel like there is a need for me to, then I will do so. I know that there are people who are able to do the work um, that may be running. No one has really declared yet. And so, oh God, if I do. <laughs> there's, there's a lot to fix. Uh, there's, there's certainly like, I, I would have my work cut out for me. Uh, but yeah, I, my goal has always been, uh, my priority is to, to build the housing that we need. And I love, I love building housing, especially because most of my life I've lived in apartments. So like the thing that we talk about, which is small scale living and how that connects to a larger community, like that's been my entire life. And that's the, the experience I bring um, unique to my architecture. And so I don't know, like if I do, it's because I feel like we would have to push even further than what's being proposed, if that makes sense. Like if someone's like, yeah, yeah I see that Seattle needs to change and we're just gonna like do a little bit like this and we'll be like, no, I'm sorry. Like we, we are running out of time. We have got to move forward. <laughs> and if you're not selling me something where we're gonna actually do the hard work, then yeah, I'm gonna roll up my sleeves and we're gonna go. You've got such a, a great- If that makes sense. No, it does. And, and, and I mean, you've got such a great uh, perspective and I think um, the city, the country, the world would benefit from you in a leadership position. I really do. Thank you. And if anything, I think that hopefully through my activism, I can prove to people that you don't need to be a politician to be able to, to make change happen. Um, I've been really happy about some of the, the knowledge that I've shared because, for example, this past mayor during the budget process was trying to get rid of the Green New Deal supervisor. That was like a big part of a push for a Seattle Green New Deal and trying to, to make this just transition. And so sharing that information and coordinating with other people and organizing and we were able to put that back into the budget, like that's a huge thing. And it's gonna have big impacts. And you don't need to be a politician to do that kind of thing. It's really about finding those connections within the community to be able to, to leverage together as a movement and as a collective to, to see the kind of city that we want. So speaking of kind of city that you wanna see, what are your, your hopes and your ideas and your thoughts for 2021 and beyond? 2021, we are going to eliminate exclusionary zoning. And if you have not already read The Color of Law, Connor, go read it because then you will understand what I'm talking about. But we are going to do a lot of the, the past um, injustice that has happened in this city. And also allow more opportunities for people to be able to afford a home. Because I don't know about you, but even if I was making $100,000, I would not be able to afford to buy a house in Seattle. Like it is crazy. So we got to work on that. We, and also um, something that was not touched on explicitly, but I think in this movement in particular in Seattle in the black Seattle community is that they recognize how much wealth comes with owning property. And so we need to be able to provide them those opportunities to be able to build that generational wealth for their families. I am very much in the mindset of like, 
gentrification is oddly enough like a good thing because basically everyone is getting to the point of being landed gentry that you're like improving everyone to be able to to have a means to be able to to do all the things that they would like to do and to be able to survive in the city but also recognizing that the people that are displaced are the people who aren't able to go up to that next level and so how does the city support those individuals to ensure that they're still able to uh, live a full life and thrive within Seattle because it's not their fault that they're not able to move up to that next level. Mm, very interesting. Well, Mr. All Travels, you have, you have any thoughts about 2021? Um, uh, <laughs> you know, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm very hopeful for 2021, but, it, you know, it, I think if there's anything that 2020 has taught me is that um, you can have all the plans in the world. You don't know how the year is going to go. So um, I think that's, uh, true. that's one of the things like I was thinking back at the beginning of, uh, well, at work, we were having a conversation just about, I don't even remember what, but somehow we got on the topic of, you know, in January, life was like this, and now here we are in December, it's almost January again, and life is like this. And so I think um, it's interesting, all the things that I didn't do this year, and all of the things that I had planned to do this year and didn't get to do, but all of the things that I actually ended up doing that I wanted to do that I didn't actually even have planned, but maybe wanted, uh, had some desire to do at some point. And I think it was a really uh, good year. Um, I think 2021 for me will be a year of um, getting to a next level in, in many respects. So I look at 2020 as a maybe a foundational year, um, founding some new things, some new projects, and then building upon those in 2021. You know, I think as a country, right, we'll, we'll be led by a different president. And I think what I would like to see for uh, the allies, the activists and the advocates out there that, you know, we continue to stay connected, right? Continue to um, push for the changes that we've talked about this year, continue the conversations that we're, we've been having um, this year the pandemic doesn't end in 2021 so we still have to deal with that but we also have to keep in mind that um the problems that we were exposed to um this year they still need to be addressed and i think that's perhaps the area where i am most concerned is how to maintain a level of support um you know that's actually why we started this podcast was to, to ensure that we were constantly um, providing this time and space for thinking and talking about what we need to do, the type of actions that we need to take. So, um, yes. Yeah. As, as, as individuals, we, we can't think that because we have made it out of this year that our work is done. Really agree. And yeah, that's Absolutely. And I think that's been a, yeah, a big chat about this concept of what normal is and knowing that 
even before the pandemic, like things weren't normal for many people. Mm -hmm. And so what is the, what is the next version of what life is like and how do we bring everyone along with that? Well, I know one last piece that we wanted to touch on the show that usually we do in the beginning is our shout out section of the show. And so I know Mr. Well-Traveled, you had a couple shout outs that you want to start and then we'll go to Ace. Um, but how about you take it? All right. Yeah. So I've got actually three today. Um, the first one is Mary Lyles, who is a board member of No More Under, a nonprofit based in Bellevue, Washington. Uh, so let me tell you about their mission real quick. No More Under focuses on water safety awareness and drowning prevention. Um, they believe that education, awareness, and access to swimming skills will save lives, and they are dedicated to living in a world where no one drowns. So I became aware of the organization because I follow Mary on Instagram, and she posts uh, about her involvement in the organization. And so I took a look at their website and I was really uh, inspired by it um, because they're doing a couple of really interesting things. So one of them is that they have an app called Water Watcher app. It's available on the Apple App Store. Uh, help, it helps you to keep your eyes on the water, not on your phone. They've also produced a documentary called No More Under and it features families who have experienced tragedies, tragedies um, and they're openly discussing the epidemic of drowning. So this organization's current goals include uh, 300 life jacket giveaways, 1,000 water watcher app downloads, and 20 CPR parties. So if you are interested in learning more about the organization, you can visit their website, uh, nomoreunder.org. All right, so that's uh, my first shout out, No More Under and Mary Lyles. Um, you will also see within the notes of the uh, show, uh, wherever you're listening, uh, you'll see a link to uh, the organization. Uh, my next shout out is to also someone I follow on Instagram. Uh, his name is Kelechi Irebu, and he's a student leader at the University of Houston. And right now he has, he's participating in a campaign called Texas Sized Christmas. And so I saw him post about it the other day and I thought it was a really good uh, campaign. And I wanted to share it with uh, you, uh, Ace and Connor and all of our listeners. So uh, their mission for this campaign is to address the 1.4 million households currently facing food insecurity in the state of Texas. Uh, to combat mm -hmm. this, uh, students from eight Texas universities, including Ace's alma mater, uh, University of Texas, Austin, have teamed up to raise money and donate non-perishable okay. goods to food banks. Um, you, anyone can participate. You don't have to be a student at one of these universities. You go to the website for the students, uh.com slash hunger. You find your city and that can be Houston, Dallas, Austin, College Station. Click the link to the affiliated food bank and you donate directly. Um, the, their goals vary by city. And so it really just depends right now. I took a look at Houston. They've raised almost $600. Um, so that's a, seems like a really great uh, cause. And I really love that the, it's student led, right? When we talk about leadership and the next generation, um, it's, it's great to see, um, young people really taking up the charge to address, uh, at least in the interim, a really big problem. Um, and then lastly, uh, you know, last, last episode, we talked about donating and using uh, employer matching funds. And so um, there was another organization that I donated to uh, following Giving Tuesday called the Common Acre located in Seattle, Washington. And the Common Acre's mission is to restore relationships between people and the land through ecology, agriculture, and art. Um, yes. Their projects, 
Oh, yeah, you, this, this resonates with you, I see. Uh, their projects and programs include cultivating multiple community gardens in Seattle, educating the public on soil health, studying wild bees, and planting one acre of pollinator habitat. They're currently um, in their year-end giving campaign, and they're seeking to raise $10,000. And so I was able to donate and uh, use my employer matching funds to double my donation. And, um, you know, I really wanted to donate to this organization um, because I believe that as a first level, when we talk about public safety, a first level for me is food security, um, also housing security. Um, but uh, in, in this donation, I'm hoping to um, help support an organization that is, uh, has a mission that I, I very much uh, believe in. And one of the things that the, the community gardens do is they actually provide food to food banks. So fresh fruits and vegetables grown organically. And I think that that's very important, um, very much connected back to a lot of the things we discussed today. So those are my shout outs. Ace, you got any shout outs for us this week? Yeah, now that I um, have had time. <laughs> I want to give a first shout out to any mutual aid organization that is out there during this time, just collecting donations and uh, feeding people. I think something that we don't talk about enough is just how there how so many informal ways that people help out each other because we say, oh, we're just helping out a friend. But if you expand that to having bigger organizations that kind of help uh, during this time has been so helpful and so uh, so fulfilling in some ways. Like I have been impacted by my own mutual aid um, just in this past couple of weeks of being supported as I was looking for a new job. Uh, so as my uh, own architecture firm has not been faring super well just because of COVID, but that's just the nature of the game. And then the second one I want to do is for uh, Pascal Sablin. And so Pascal is the 315th living black female architect. And she just uh, was awarded the Whitney M. Young uh, Award, which is the highest honor for someone in the American Institute of Architects, which is like our big club, um, for civic service. And so it's a it's the highest honor for someone who's doing service. And she's the executive director of what's called Beyond the Built Environment. And so they engage community through architecture to advocate equitable and reflectively diverse environments. And so it is very much what we are talking about in the past uh, few minutes or throughout the whole conversation of really trying to, to bring architecture to the community so that they have a better understanding of how they can be involved and how much of an impact architecture has on their life. So yeah, those are my two. Love it. Thank you. Can you tell me the name of the org one more time? I want to make sure we get the link to it. Beyond the Built Environment. Beyond the built Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those. We'll make sure those are all linked up on the show notes as well. Uh, my shout out is uh, first, Mr. World Travel, you also uh, mention these is just all the food banks. If you are listening and you're here in Seattle, uh, there's food banks in pretty much all the areas of Seattle. Uh, the one I'm most familiar with is uh, the Rainier Valley Beach, uh, or I'm sorry, Rainier Valley Food Bank uh, right there on Rainier Avenue. And uh, if you 
are at the grocery store or you're buying food or you happen to buy, you can either donate with your dollars uh, because I've learned with these food banks, their buying power is actually really, really impressive um, because of the if they have access to where they buy food from, like a dollar, a single dollar goes a long way. Um, and it's gonna go a lot further than us buying food and actually donating food because of the power they have. But if you're at the grocery store, you happen to think about it, right? Buy a couple extra things that you can donate to these food banks because uh, cities around the country desperately, desperately need food. So I'm glad that uh, you brought up those organizations, Mr. World Traveled. Um, and the other one that I, I, I guess I have two more that I wanna shout out is one, if you're in downtown Seattle, uh, you know the Macy's Star that sits there right on like 4th and Pike. Um, they're doing a fundraiser right now. It's called yeah. Seconds of Stardom. And, uh, and what it's doing is you can go online and you can customize 15 seconds to uh, an hour of the star with all the colors and animations and graphics. And it comes with a donation, which goes directly to Mary's place. Um, since we all can't like be down there and really see the star, which I guess you could still go down and watch it. You can donate money and you get to like program the star yourself. And then they send you a video of like the animation and everything. That was a really fun way to uh, help a really big organ or big uh, good organization here in Seattle dealing with homelessness, uh, specifically with women and children, and uh, just like a fun like piece of art to connect with the city. Uh, the last one is the Pike Place Market Foundation. They have uh, what's called the Market Community Safety Net, which uh, they're doing fundraisers all throughout the year. And what the safety net does is it provides financing to uh, in times like this for when all of the vendors have financial hardships, right? So, so Pike Place Market is just uh, organizations of hundreds, if not thousands of creators and small business owners. And this market community safety net is helping support so many of those people. Because if you walk around Pike Place Market right now, it's it's sad to see how many vendors are not there. It's a really empty place right now. And so uh, if you want to yeah. donate something mm -hmm. there, I think the uh, Pike Place Market Community Fund is an interesting place to go look. Well, that concludes yeah, another episode of Community as a Verb. I want to say thank you so much to Ace for joining us this week. And Mr. Will Travel, thank you as always for jumping on and providing your, uh, your insight as always. Ace, where can we connect with you and find you on the internet after watching this show? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for listening to me. And if you want more of this, you can find me at the Urban Ace, so T-H-E, Urban Ace, at both Instagram and Twitter. And of course, if you're interested in uh, the design work that I do, and if you're ever looking for an architect, that is uh, House Cosmopolitan, so www.housecosmopolitan.com. And Mr. Will Travel. You got any parting words for us? Oh, right. Um, <laughs> 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 I thought we were about to wrap it up. I was like, all right. We can. <laughs> okay, Go Sounders! So, oh, I don't watch sports. <laughs> so, uh, yes. Well, it's game day. <laughs> oh. oh, is it? Okay, well, I, I'm sure Connor will be watching that he's he's a big sounders fan i know um uh you know i this is our eighth episode ace you are our third guest and um 
I think the main thing that I, I want to say is just how appreciative I am, one, of your time today. I know it, this was a long conversation, and we always have the best intention of trying to make them, like, short, but the conversations are just so good. And, you know, I think um, as we think about community as a verb, right, like the actions that we have to take, what has become increasingly clear to me, and I think to Connor as well, is that, you know, bringing our perspectives to the table, that's one thing, but then really expanding that to looking across and looking around the community and saying, we're not the only ones in it, right? There are other people who have very unique perspectives. They are activists, they're advocates, they're allies, and we should hear from them. And their perspectives can help to shape us and our actions. And I think we're a better community for it. And so, you know, having you uh, here today is just a great reminder of that. Um, I hope for for the listeners today that they had uh, a similar reaction um, as, as I did when I started thinking about, you know, activism and architecture going together. Those two things, I just never even hear the words. But then I did a simple Google search and there's a lot out there on the subject. There are a lot of people talking about architecture and activism. And so, um, you know, that's it's, it's a great thing that we are opening our minds now to thinking about the built environment as, um, uh, a, as part of social justice. Um, it should have truly always been that way, right? But, um, you know, we, we learn what we, are, we learn and then we unlearn. And I think um, today was very helpful for me. And I, I look forward to our next episodes and as we start to really build upon all that we've learned this year and um, continuing to connect with more and more people and, and really expanding um, our, our definition of community. Um, that being said, um, for the listeners, we have some really great listeners who uh, always post us on Instagram. They share whenever we have a new episode and um, we are very much appreciative for all of you too. Um, if you can, please give us a rating on whichever platform you use to listen to us. Um, and also please share if you know an architect in your life uh, and you think this would be a great episode for them, yeah. please share this. Um, and if you know an activist, an ally or an advocate and someone who would just like to hear a great inspirational story, please share uh, this episode. I think they will not be disappointed. I totally agree. Thank you very much to both and of you. The, oh, wait, wait, yes, Connor. I would love to say just one yeah. more thing. <laughs> I was just trying to say something. <laughs> yeah, because um, people always talk about within um, cities, like preserving neighborhood character. And people think that it's really about the buildings, but it's really about the neighbors. It's really about the character of the characters that live in your area. And so, um, the one thing that you can do is you don't have to be an activist. You can be an advocate or even that you don't have to be an advocate, but if you want to make your city a better place, be proactive and reach out to one other person within your community. And that will have a massive impact if every single person did that. That's a great way to finish. I love it. I love it. Thanks to both of you. <laughs> Wonderful show. Happy Hanukkah to anyone out there who's listening, who's celebrating this week. And uh, we'll see you mm -hmm. for another episode in two weeks. See ya.